2,500 years ago, a Greek philosopher named Protagoras declared that man is the measure of all things, and he probably meant man, right? On one hand, it is understandable that human beings have often declared that, surprise, human beings are the best universal standard. On the other hand, this sort of human-centric worldview was easier to defend intellectually two and a half millennia ago, before Copernicus showed us that we are actually not at the center of the universe. We're just the third rock from the sun. And before Darwin showed us that we humans are not a little lower than the angels, but merely a little higher than the apes and deeply interconnected to the other ecosystems on this planet. As this debate about the central importance of humanity continued in the 1600s, a French philosopher named René Descartes said, well, you know, the reasons that animals do not speak as we do is not that they lack the organs, but that they have no thoughts. A few decades later, Descartes' fellow Frenchman Voltaire spoke as derisively about Descartes' views of animals as Descartes had spoken about animals. Voltaire said, what a pitiful and sorry thing to have said that animals are mere machines bereft of understanding and feelings. Is it because I speak to you that you judge that I have feelings and memories and ideas? Well, what if I don't speak to you, but you still see me going home looking disconsolate, seeking a paper anxiously, opening the desk where I remember having shut it, finding it, reading it joyfully? Well, I would imagine that you would judge that I've experienced the feelings of distress and that of pleasure and that I have access to memory and to understanding. Well, bring that same judgment, Voltaire says, bring that same judgment to bear on this dog, which has lost its master, which has sought him on every road with sorrowful cries, which enters the house agitated, uneasy, goes up the stairs from room to room, which at least and which at last finds in his study the master that it loves and finds its joy by its cries of delight, by its leaps, by its caresses. I suspect that many of you who have lived in close proximity to animals have similar stories of having some sense that animals do think and feel. My dogs, for example, have different barks for when they want to be fed versus when they're trying to scare away an innocent postal worker. (laughs) Similarly, I'm pretty sure my cat is trying to tell me something, like he's losing his patience with me when I wait too late to feed him, pass by the room where the there's a dog door that ke- I mean a baby gate that keeps the dogs out of the cat's room. Really, their litter—it's disgusting. Uh, but uh, the cat will look me dead in the eye and push over the gate, bam, trying to tell me, "Feed me now. I'm angry." It seems obvious to me that animals think and feel, but there have been serious debates over the past millennia about precisely that issue. So this morning, I'd like to invite us to explore some of what scientists have been learning about what we can and can't know about what animals are thinking and feeling. If you're interested in learning more, this sermon was inspired by a book titled Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by the ecologist Carl Safina, who's a professor at Stony Brook University. 
As we proceed, a crucial point to keep in mind is the challenge that we've been facing ever since the 1859 publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, that we humans are animals too. We are part of the animal kingdom. And as Darwin wrote later in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, everyone has heard of the dog suffering vivisection. Well, maybe everyone hasn't heard of that, but imagine you have. So everyone has heard of the dog suffering under vivisection who licked the hand of the operator. This man, unless the operation was fully justified by an increase in our human knowledge, or unless this man had a heart of stone, must have felt remorse until the last day of his life. Darwin later added, the animals whom we have made our slaves, we do not like to consider our equal. Now, I'll readily allow that I do not think that Darwin was saying precisely that all animals are equal in their capacity to think and feel. That clearly seems to not be the case. But I do think he was challenging us to consider that the differences between us humans and our fellow animals is more one of degree than one of kind. There is a spectrum of thinking and feeling, and we are on it along with our fellow animals. If you'll allow me to stay with Darwin just one more moment, the extent to which that is the case may become more obvious if we stretch our perspective beyond animals to include plants. Less than two years before Darwin's death in 1882, he published a book on the power of movement in plants in which he concluded that it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the tip of the radical root acts like the brain of one of the lower animals, receiving impressions from the sense organs and directing the several movements. So it's not surprising, actually, that all of life is on a spectrum of thinking and feeling because all of life can be traced back to a common ancestor on the evolutionary tree of life. So if you will turn to your handy pew inserts, uh, let me go through this briefly. So if you look on the page with the hand drawing, that's actually a, draw, uh, a photograph of one of Darwin's notebooks from 1837 in which he's first sketching the evolutionary tree. And he, right, you see at the top left-hand corner, he says, I think, right? He's trying to figure it out. And so finally then, in 1859, we get his book on the origin of species when he wrote, therefore, I should infer from analogy that probably all organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form into which life was first breathed. Now, it may be more complicated than that. It may have been that it wasn't just so simply that this particular first form of life was then the common ancestor, but this is what's known as universal common descent. So if you flip the page, you'll see some things that this is a model of the tree of life, so that the, we're part of this ongoing universe story that is 13.8 billion years old. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. The uh, life on Earth is about 3.8 billion years old. And the so-called last universal common ancestor is about 3.5 to 3.8 billion years old. So that's that last, that's the trunk, the bottom of the tree of life. And the first animals are about a billion years old. So you see these three major branches. I won't get too nerdy into prokaryotic, eukaryotic. I know some of you are starting to have uh, flashbacks to biology, right? So does it have a nucleus or not? How simple or complex is it? But if you look kind of on that right side of the page in the top right-hand corner, you'll see animals. And you'll see how 
everything comes from that same last common ancestor if you go far enough back down on the branches of the tree of life. And you'll see in particular animals, um, fungi, and plants. And then also note, and we'll, we can revisit this in two weeks for those of you who are reading Octavia Butler's um, book that we'll talk about, The Parable of the Talents, she actually explicitly references slime molds as being something like that being found on another planet. So you can see how that's kind of related to uh, animals and plants. All right, so set aside your uh, handout. You can get nerdy on that later if you want. But uh, even when life began, there was still an extremely long time that life was merely single-celled organisms in the sea. And the first members of the animal kingdom emerged from the evolutionary tree of life, again, perhaps a billion years ago, probably a little bit after that. For any pair of animals alive now, you and a bird, you and a fish, a bird and a fish, you can trace the lines of descent back down the tree to eventually meet a common ancestor, an ancestor of both. In the case of human and chimps, we have a um, common ancestor very quickly, at least in geologic time, about six million years ago. For very different pairs of animals, say humans and beetles, we have to trace the line much further back. We now know today on the DNA level, for example, that there is a 1.23% difference between us, homo sapiens, and pantroglodytes, a.k.a. chimpanzees. 1.23%. Regarding the implications of common ancestry on the tree of life, the best book I've read recently is called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith, a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. As we talked about earlier, we only have to go back six million years to find a common ancestor of a human and a chimpanzee. But what about a human and that cute octopus that uh, Laura was showing us earlier? So instead of six million years back, with a human and a chimp, you have to go back 600 million years to get a common ancestor of a human and an octopus. And as best we can tell, the last common ancestor of human and octopuses looked something like a small flattened worm just millimeters long, swimming in the ocean with simple eyes or at least light-sensitive patches. And over time, as members of this common millimeter-long worm-like ancestor reproduced, evolution happened through an accumulation of happenstance chances. And before long, we're looking not at two collections of worms, but at two enormous branches on the evolutionary tree. One path forward leads to vertebrates and within vertebrates to mammals and eventually humans. The other path leads to a great range of invertebrate species, including crabs and bees and their relatives, many kinds of worms, also the mollusks, the group that includes clams and oysters and snails. But here's where it gets really interesting. I know you were already interested, but here's where it gets really interesting. On that branch that leads us not to humans, but to octopuses, most of the animals are fairly small except for the cephalopods. Of particular interest among the cephalopods are octopuses, cuttlefish, that's a great name, cuttlefish, and squid, who have large and complex nervous systems. Cephalopods are an island of mental complexity in the sea of invertebrate animals. And from the perspective of the tree of life in which we split from them 600 million years ago, the most recent common ancestor of humans and octopuses was so simple and lies so far back. Remember, it's just this small flattened worm with simple eyes, or at least light-sensitive patches, that what 
what that means that, uh, that cephalopods today have these large complex nervous systems, it means that cephalopods are an independent experiment in the evolution of large brains and complex behavior in our universe. In Godfrey Smith's words, if we can make contact with cephalopods as sentient beings, it is not because of a shared history or because of a kinship, but because evolution built minds twice over. I'll read that again. Because evolution built minds twice over. This is probably the closest we will come, he says, to meeting an intelligent alien. All this, of course, raises a lot of questions about definitions. So let's talk about it. When we talk about what animals think and feel, we use that word consciousness a lot. Consciousness is about awareness. As far as I know, this pulpit, not conscious. I could chop it down, we could burn it, we might upset some people, but it would make no difference to the pulpit. If you remember what Darwin wrote earlier about plants, then maybe the tree it came from was aware in some extremely basic sense of that word awareness, but let's set that aside for a future sermon on trees, because our focus today is on animals. One helpful definition of consciousness comes from Christopher Koch, head of the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. He says that consciousness is the thing that feels something. If you cut your leg, that's physical. If the cut hurts, that's consciousness. The part of your brain that knows that the cut hurts, that feels and thinks, that's your mind. The ability to feel sensations, that's sentience. Under general anesthesia, for example, you remain, we hope, very much alive, but you're not conscious. That's why it doesn't hurt when they cut you. And during sleep, our unconscious brains are working hard, cleansing and sorting and rejuvenating. So how do we begin to map the spectrum of sentience of what animals might think and feel? And we still have a lot to learn, but science has also learned an incredible amount just in the past century. There's a lot of stories I could tell you about Jane Goodall in particular and others who went through all kinds of hell for using words like he and she for animals instead of it, for trying to even talk about these things was very verboten. It was something that could, it was said, ask that question about what animals think and feel after you get tenure. But here's what we've learned anyway over the past century, despite those restrictions that were there until quite recently. The simple fact that chickens establish a pecking order was not formally recognized until the 1920s. Also in the 1920s, Margaret Morse's niece first discovered that songbirds defend territories and that that's one of the basic reasons that they sing. In 1973, three scientists uh, shared a Nobel Prize for their studies of the honeybee dance language, of fish courtship rituals, of how baby geese imprint on the first thing that they see. Conventional wisdom holds that only humans consciously plan, but we now know that jays, that's the name of several species of medium-sized birds, store perishable foods and that they use up the most perishable food stashes first. And generally, the most startling finding in recent work on animal intelligence is how smart some birds are, especially parrots and crows. Similarly, chickens establish stable social groups. They seem to be able to recognize each other by facial features. They have 24 distinct cries that seem to communicate various things to one another, including separate alarm calls. Gorillas are one among many examples of animals who use forms of tools. 
Uh, that used to be, it, there was another big one that said only humans use tools. That's very much not the case. Gorillas test the depths of marsh waters using staves. They use um, the same sticks to lean out over water, to move logs, to make bridges over swampy places. Capuchin monkeys transport heavy stones to nutcracking sites, choosing among them the precise right one size to use as anvils and hammers, respectively. Octopuses can learn to navigate simple mazes. They can use visual cues to determine which of two uh, environments they have been placed in and then make a correct route to a goal for that environment. They can learn to unscrew jars to obtain the food inside. Octopuses can also recognize and behave differently toward individual human keepers, even when the humans are wearing identical uniforms. Similarly, a cuttlefish at Dallahouse University reliably squirted streams of water on all new visitors to the lab, but not at the people who had been around for a while. <laughs> there are many recorded instances of grief rituals among elephants. These are only a few among many examples of what science is showing us about the spectrum of thinking and feeling within the animal kingdom of which we humans are a part. To make the connections about our, how capacities to think and feel relate to the universal tree of life and to evolution from common ancestry, brain scans show that our core emotions of sadness, happiness, rage, fear, and motivational feelings of hunger and thirst, those are generated in deep and very ancient circuits in our brain. The genes that direct our bodies to create mood-making hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin, for instance, date back at least 700 million years. And if they date back at least 700 million years, that means they're older than the last common ancestor of humans and octopuses, for example. Oxytocin drives bonding. It makes animal species act socially or even sexually. Block that hormone, and many animals and birds lose interest in socializing and pairing and nesting and contact and various things that happen in hunter blinds, right? So given a, a sniff of oxytocin, human fathers get more playful with their babies. They increase eye-to-eye -eye gazing. They show greater interest in the child. So what does all this mean for how animals think and feel? The ecologist Carl Safina likes to sum it up this way. Your dog really do, does love you. Cats, the verdict's out, right? <laughs> They tolerate us. Part of the reason is because you're kind. That's why your dog loves you. If you were abusive, your dog would fear you, and they might still love you out of duty or need, not so different from people trapped in abusive relationships. For me, this evolutionary tree of life, universal common ancestor view of the world, makes me feel deeply connected to what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence. Along those lines, I invite you to hear a final quote from Safina about how he has come to think about the tree of life. The different species he invites us to consider are just a little bit like people who knew each other in high school, but have since gone on to live different lives and livelihoods. Lots in common, common roots, a bond, perhaps neglected, lots of shared history. And between the first breath and the last uh, gasp, we endeavor toward a common quest to love, to raise our young, to find space enough for our lives to survive the confronting dangers, to do what it takes to the best of our ability, to live out the mystery and the opportunity of finding ourselves somehow in existence. Now, we're not all equal. There are real differences between animals, but these differences are on a spectrum of degree rather than kind. 
we're all animals. So may we each do what we can within our sphere of influence as our conscience leads us to decrease suffering, to decrease cruelty, to increase freedom and compassion for all sentient beings. As the Buddhist loving-kindness meditation says, may all sentient beings be filled with loving-kindness. May all sentient beings be well. May all sentient beings be peaceful and at ease. May all sentient beings be free. In that spirit, in a few moments, we'll sing together hymn 10, 31, filled with loving kindness. We'll sing it through three times. The first time, we'll sing together I, that first person pronoun. The second time, we'll switch to you. And as you sing that, begin to send an intention to the people around you. And then the third time, we'll sing that collective we. And for those of you here last week, you can remember some of those developmental stages where the subject of one stage becomes the object of a next. Think about that and that shift you feel within yourself and between yourselves as we shift those concentric circles of compassion expand from I to you to we. To make just one final bridging point from the joys and sorrows section I shared earlier about Charlottesville and the sermon, there's a long and deep connection between the struggle for racial justice and the struggle for animal rights. Um, to give just one very um, common example, when you look at the ways, the like in cartoons and other drawings and the, and the language being used to describe uh, the Irish and the Italians and the Jews and the African Americans. You see these animal-like words and animal-like characteristics being exaggerated in a way that um, shows this, uh, you know, is one, are we raising our children to experience difference as negative that must be destroyed? Are we, raising, are, we, are we raising ourselves and our children to experience the world primarily as one of myself as separate or one as deeply interconnected with the world, deeply realizing that all seven plus billion people on this planet are 99.9% the same on the DNA level, right? That there's 1.23% difference between, you know, we're deeply interconnected. So from that sense of felt existential interdependence, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.